Let's go. Let's go. Yes, he did. He thought you guys were awesome. As a matter of fact, he was impressed with what you guys were doing and with the answers that you gave. And he wants to write about like doing more primary documents. Like he's writing a, an academic paper and he wants to use some of the stuff we did as an example. So like he was better than impressed. Okay, so yesterday, what did we talk about? The Bear River Massacre. Hey, okay. now obviously what happened was a massacre. How many people about? Yeah, 300 to 400 people massacred. Who massacred them? Patrick Connors, people from California. Um, and why were they here? Ella, can you put that stupid black thing in there so it'll open? Thank you. I forgot to do that. I mean that excellent. Okay. Okay, where were we? I just asked you a question. Oh, why did they come? Where do they want to be? They wanted to be fighting the Civil War, and they ended up here instead, and they were trying to get all kinds of fancy stuff and do their thing, and so they wanted fortune and glory. So now we're going to talk about kind of what happened to a lot of the natives after. Now, I wanted to go into Wounded Knee and all that other kind of stuff, but we're short on time, so we're going we're gonna to hit it just a little bit differently. So... In the late 1800s, they passed this law called the Dawes Act. The Dawes Act special thing was to create um, additional assimilation. Do you guys know that word? I, I have one yes, one no, and one meh, and then a whole bunch of no's. Good, okay. Once someone else admits they don't know. Assimilation is where you pull someone in and you make them a part of you. So, like, in a neighborhood, that's a good thing. In other circumstances, it's not quite so lovely. But that's, that's their goal. They want to absorb the indigenous people and make them live like white people. That's their goal. That's their dream. Uh, they do it, though... Once these tribes are no longer fighting, and once the West is, is more settled by more descendants of Europeans, it's not really feasible for the indigenous people to keep living the lifestyle they've always had. And so the Dazak's idea is that it's going to force them to adapt to the new circumstances in which they find themselves. Here's how they decide to do it. You can see the map on your screens. But imagine we live, if, if we're a tribe, we live in this beautiful place. There's this lovely lake here going on. Uh, there's a river going to some mountains. So what they did is they just drew a grid on top of it, and they assigned different families, different individuals inside the tribe, some of those grid spaces. 
then it was up to them to do whatever they wanted to do with it. They could farm it, they could sell it. Now here's what happened. They decided that they would give, because this is done by the Indian agent in the area, they decided that they would give each person Uh, land based on how much they liked them. And they liked them better if they were willing to take the good land and then sell it and give the Indian agents bribes. So you'd show up if the Indian agent comes in and says, oh, um, you know, whoever, this is your property. I'm going to give this to you, but only if you turn around and sell it you'll keep this much money, I'll keep this much money, then I'll let you have this territory. If you say no, then he gives you something more useless. Now, if you say yes, then, then you work out the deal. If he really hates you, he gives you something really crappy, like <laughs> that doesn't work at all. And so they split up all these reservations. Now, so think about this for a sec. What does that do to the land that is left for these tribes. If you're living on a reservation, why is it harder after the Dawes Act than it was before? It's more restricted. Awesome. I mean, not awesome, but awesome answer. Yeah. You are more restricted. The, the space you can live is smaller and the prime land is gone. So if you were a farmer, now the best farmland is given over to someone else. As a random side note, you had Mr. Reader? Reader grew up on the Navajo reservation. This is why someone, if I remember right, uh, his family rented the, the house. Someone like four generations ago got it from some of the Navajos, and so his family rented it from a thing. He'll tell you about it. He'll tell you all about it. He, don't, he won't mind if you ask him. But yeah, so you end up with the best land is gone. Here's another result. Because they want to educate them in the kind of European system, we see the end of a lot of things that happened before. So the dude on the left is the same as the dude on the right. When you go to one of these Indian schools, they make you change your, they make you cut your hair, change your clothes, look differently, act differently. The picture on the bottom is the Carlisle Indian School. It's the biggest one in history. What do you notice in that picture? They all look sad. It's probably true. All the people look sad on purpose in pictures back then. They're dressed the same. They're told to act the same. They're told to speak the same. They get beaten if they um, speak their native language. Conditions in the school are not good. This school has its own cemetery. This is an indicator of how bad things are. Yay.
That was sarcastic. I'm glad you asked if you thought. Um, that was loud and distracting. I was going to tell you something else. Oh, the Indian school in Brigham City was a little different. Now, some Native people liked it and some hated it. Um, but they weren't trying to just eradicate Native culture completely. But it was a boarding school away from their ancestors. So some really liked it and some did not at all. They had a riot in the late 70s. A riot in Brigham City. 1970s. Yeah. Yeah, most of your parents were alive. Most of your parents don't remember it because they were little kids, but... Hey, so what's life on the reservation like? I want you to look at these pictures and see uh, what do you notice? What is life like there? There's like nothing, yeah. If, if you were looking for entertainment, I guess there's that basketball hoop. But yeah, it, it, is, it is fairly desolate. That's pretty typical of reservation life. What else? Oh, good. Like, it's totally lacking in, in the infrastructure. You are not going to get high-speed internet here. You are not going to get... Well, I, I mean, think of what that entails. Everything that entails. Good. Yeah, I think that, that book was written by a dude who was trying to be like, he's trying to point out how Native people are just people, and they play basketball and watch movies, although they don't have a movie theater on the reservation either. Look at that bus picture. What's wrong in that picture? Yeah, imagine if it rains. They're going to have problems. Yeah. They're going to have serious problems here in the rain. Okay. Good. Good, good. Yeah. Yes. Yes, but that's because those terms are, are super loaded with with some other things. And so a couple, couple of things. This is a long answer to that question. Um, first, most indigenous people actually don't live on reservations. They live off of reservations, as you well know, because I know there's like tons of them in your class. And even some of you have some indigenous ancestry. Some of you have quite a bit of indigenous ancestry. Uh, so you already knew that. Um, reservation life is harder in general. Their unemployment rate is quite high. On Pine Ridge, for example, the unemployment rate hovers between 50 and 80 percent. So in a good year, we're talking 50 percent unemployment. So you know the worst part 
of the Great Depression, like the worst places hit at the worst time in the Great Depression had like 20% unemployment. So to have a good year that's 50% unemployment, we're talking really serious problems with unemployment going on here. Infrastructure like we already talked about. But at the same time, so understand there are problems on a reservation. The police force is inadequate at best. Sometimes they're just downright corrupt. But these people still have school. They still mostly have electricity, even if it's solar powered. Here on the Navajo reservation, water is life is very common. They're trying to get more wells and things dug, better water infrastructure. Um, but it's not like they are still very much like us. You know what I mean? If you go on the reservation. And a lot of times they do both. So my neighbor, uh, two doors down and across the street. So his name's Marty. He's a Navajo. He has a house on the reservation. It's not a big house. It's not a fancy house. It's not whatever. And then he has a house in my neighborhood. If you ask him where he lives, you might get the answer on the Navajo reservation and you might get the answer in Brigham City on 800 North. You know, he kind of lives in both places. And the way that they live, he's got extended family in both, both houses. It's not like he's super wealthy and has two houses. He, he has a bunch of people that rely on him. Oh, that's a good question. Okay, so how come they don't leave? Good, expand on that just a little bit. Yeah, this is the, this is their family, this is their community, and this is their sacred space. Yeah, good. Perfect, that's the other one. It, it's a way to preserve their culture. Yeah, fabulous. Now that said, of course, a lot of them do leave. Okay, so let's talk. What happened to the Shoshones after the massacre? For starters, we got to differentiate between the people of Cache Valley and the people like farther out. They all thought that this is the end of the Indian Wars, at least in this territory. It is not. If people slaughtered a bunch of your relatives, you'd probably be upset. And that's what they, they don't just lay down and die. It actually whips up the Shoshone into a bit of a frenzy. For the next few months, they have quite a few skirmishes. Uh, deaths on the immigrant trail go up. Connor didn't make it safe. He made it more dangerous. Uh, but that's not the story. That's not the way that they wanted it to be. So it's not the way they remembered. So they're coming across. And even though more of them are getting attacked, at, in actuality, they're saying, oh yeah, uh, we're safer. They just feel safer. 
same thing. We, we don't understand. We humans are really bad at judging whether we're safe or not. Right now, this is the safest place. Uh, the United States is super safe. Um, and this is the safest time in all of history. We expect to grow up, and, but we think we're super unsafe, if that makes sense. We, we're just super bad at judging when we're, when we're okay. There's some psychological reasons for that. Um, in Cache Valley, though, they stopped fighting. Why? Yeah, yeah, it's not a happy reason, but that's, that's correct. Yeah, Bear Hunter, remember his clan was the one that was fighting up in Cache Valley? They're mostly dead. The ones that have been doing the skirmishes, they, they're not there anymore. And so it does calm things down around here. So what do the survivors do? I mean, they're, they're struggling, they're destitute. Before I show you, I just wanted to point this out. I was looking for the, the text for the Treaty of Box Elder, and I happened on Wikipedia, and I was like, oh, cool. They cited me. So here's the thing. Like, do I know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you guys are mean. <laughs> Come back when you're a Touche. Touche. Okay, Treaty of Box Elder then. I thought it was cool. So, Treaty of Box Elder, read through it. What are the terms? In 1863, they signed more treaties than just about any other year because the natives saw what had happened to the Shoshones and they were quick to sign treaties. But this, the Treaty of Box Elder, notice, what does it say? Okay, so that's the first thing, is we're going to reestablish amicable relations. What does that actually mean? We're going to stop killing each other. Okay, that's usually a good thing to put in a treaty. Okay, what else? I don't know if you'll see it. Look at Article... Where is it? Where is the money? Is it in three? Okay, yeah, in three. What do they get? Okay, $5,000 when? Yeah, right away, how come? Yeah, because they're super struggling. Now, then it refers to the Treaty of Fort Bridger. What that does is that gives them money for education healthcare, and um, food in, perpetu in perpetuity, meaning forever. So in 
So basically, the United States trades friend, friendly relations and the ability to stay on the land for money. Money every year. Guess what the United States does? Yeah, they just don't give it to them for years and years. So 1863 to 1945, finally in 1945, the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation sues the United States and loses. The Supreme Court says, oh, they knew they didn't really mean to give them money. Everyone knew that they didn't mean it. The, gov the government is given the right to settle the, the land. That's why you missed it. <laughs> yeah, okay, so 1945, Northwestern Shoshone versus the United States. The Supreme Court rules five to four that it's just a treaty of friendship. That while the government did say that they would give the Shoshones money, they're not going to actually do it, and that nobody who signed the treaty actually expected them to follow through. Uh, yeah, it's <laughs> that's a good point. Did you hear him? He said they're suing them, so obviously somebody expected, which is a good point. It's not till a few decades later when an act is passed by Congress, creates the Indian Claims Commission. So in 1968, they're like, we owe you guys money going back in time. And so they paid out one lump sum of $15 million. Now the U.S. gives them money for education, healthcare, housing. I looked up how much it was. Last year it was about a million and a half for the tribe. Yeah, just for that tribe. Yeah, so that's that's the tribal members from here to there. Is that a handout? Is that welfare? That is not welfare. What is it? I don't know. You won't know the, the verbiage. It's, it's our treaty obligation. It's the U.S. treaty obligation. Like, who signed the treaty? Not people who know about it. <laughs> yes. But I was also with, with my friend Tom. No, I wasn't with him. But he told me this story. He came back one day. He was just ticked off. He'd gone to McDonald's and somebody had stopped, stopped him and they're like, go back where you came from. He's a Shoshone, right? And some white dude's telling him to go. And he's like, you go back where you came from, you jerk. <laughs> yeah, that's what it's like. Okay, done. <laughs> so yes, there are ignorant people in the world. But that's... I mean, that's the term. It's, it's the treaty. Those of you who had poli-sci, how powerful is a treaty? Yeah, pretty darn powerful. Or at least it's supposed to be after, apparently not until 1945. So that's what happened. So where do they go then? What do they do? They moved to Bear River. And, uh, you know, the massacre happened along the Bear River, but now they're moving to Bear River. 
So about halfway, well, not halfway, maybe a quarter of the way between Bear River City and Corinne, right on the banks of the Bear River, that's where they're living. They set up their tents, they start farming the land, and the citizens of Corinne decided that they didn't like having native people living next to them. And they wanted their land, now that the Shoshones had tilled it and made it good for growing crops. So they decided that they would go in and kill them all. Fortunately, this time, George W. Hill steps in. George W. Hill was the missionary from the Latter-day Saints to the Shoshone. He stepped in and tried to stop them. He was pretty successful, although it was hard. Like one, at one point, they were coming from Corinth towards them, and so they cut the rope for the ferry. So they couldn't get the ferry across, and by the time the mob had kind of managed to get across the river, they'd lost most of their anger and went back home. Yeah. This is the same guy that counted the deaths, yes. He's super important in Shoshone history. He did baptize a large number of them. If you're ever in the Latter-day Saint Temple, in the baptistry in the bottom floor, you'll see that depicted. By the way, the modern Shoshone posed to take the place of their ancestors. So if you're ever there and you see the dude holding the blankets and stuff, that's my friend Tom. The dude getting blessed is uh, Rios, his brother. I want to say it's his brother. Might be his cousin. I don't know. Shoshones are really, yeah, close with their extended relatives. Okay, so that's Corinne, of course, then fades into the background. The Shoshones need another place to live. And so they move up to this city called Washakie. They found a city. This is just south of Portage. Are you familiar with Portage? Portage has got to be the tiniest community in the state of Utah. So if you're driving to Idaho on I-15... You pass Plymouth, because Plymouth is like 10 times as big as Portage. And there's that gas station there, like the last chance to get gas before Idaho. And then you're up, you're hugging the mountain. The mountain's right on your right side. And there's like one exit, and you see maybe 12 houses over to the left. That's Portage. So Washakie, you take that same exit, and you go out. Don't do this, though. Don't visit this place, because right now it's owned by these, like, fundamentalist polygamists, and I'm told that they will shoot at people if they suspect you of not being legitimately out there. I don't know, because I always go to the cemetery, and they, wa they watch me when I'm out there to see if I'm going to do anything nefarious. Uh, don't go there. Um, the city... They build the city, they build a school, they dig a canal. It's super hard. It takes a really long time to dig this canal by hand uh, to get them water. And they grow sugar beets. They were fairly successful for a while. When World War II hit, a lot of them moved out, searching for better jobs, economic opportunities. While they were gone... Uh, the land is sold and they come back to nothing. So right now, you could see what's left. There's their church house on the left and up above. 
Um, there's their cemetery. Every Memorial Day, they go out and dig up the, not dig up, but dig out the weed and leave gifts for their ancestors. You can see some of the gifts are there. Okay, questions? Yeah. They found it. So the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints gave them the land. They founded it. Yes, they created it. It was the church again. Yep. Yeah. No, this is the way after. Way, way after. They're still upset about it. I don't know. I don't know the just behind it. Like I'd be lying if I pretended that I did. And anything that I say would be conjecture. Not for that. <laughs> World War Two. So that's nineteen. It's the nineteen forties, and the land is sold in the sixties. I. I will actually give my conjecture. Like my neighbor, who's not Shoshone, he's Navajo, um, a lot of native and indigenous people tend to move around. They still will go from place to place. And I suspect that they had moved and that they thought I have moved temporarily. And that uh, some white people came in and are like, they're not living here anymore and then that's that's my guess is that it's a big cultural misunderstanding and I'll do my last little plug that's why you hire people that are different than you so that you end up with somebody who's like oh wait a minute to my people that looks like this That's, that's a famous example they give in marketing classes. Um, EA, a few years ago, did this huge thing, like this marketing campaign to try to sell video games to women by basically making them pink. Yeah. Did I not answer your question? Oh. Okay, she asked, I'm gonna stop this.